Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. Welcome to Programming Leadership. Our show today is on building safety in your organization, and I am so excited to have Tim Ottinger as my guest. Welcome, Tim. Well, hey, good to be here, Marcus. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. And as I'm at home alone, I feel relatively safe, although I'm not exactly sure why. So let's start with this big question. Psychological safety and safety of all kinds is really a hot topic, especially amongst software engineering teams. Can you give us a working definition that you use for safety? Certainly. So I would say that a safety, safety itself is um, defined by the presence of safeties, which are mechanisms that keep an error from becoming a catastrophe. Hmm. Okay, my mind just kind of exploded there because you took the word safety and then you used it. So safety, as you're talking about, a safety is a noun, something you can point to, a policy, a guardrail, that is a safety. And I'll be honest, I live in rural Oregon and we have guns and Mm -hmm. each gun has a safety, at least it should. And so that was the first thing that came to mind was the safety on a gun is something that prevents... Uh, How how did you say it? You said it so nicely. It prevents an error from becoming a catastrophe. And in fact, that the safety on a gun was one of our first thoughts. Ashley Johnson and I were working on uh, teaching about safety. And we we glommed on that. The reason the safety is on the gun is because any accident could become a catastrophe. But with the safety on, that's not going to happen. And in fact, you know, it may actually even prevent use sometimes when you intended to use it. Oh, darn, I left the safety on. Click, click. Okay. Um, I, there have been a number of hunters who have missed that prize buck because of that reason. Oh, absolutely. I, I have not quite been one of them, but my father ingrained to me, you know, you don't take the safety off. There were always a lot of rules. And so uh, since we're going down this road, I will say if you're listening to this podcast and you're uncomfortable with guns, I don't think we'll be here a long time. But guns represent an item by which a very small uh, amount of force creates a very large effect. So I think it is applicable that we we think about safeties as being especially important in those situations. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, in some places, you know, the, the, you live in a more rural area. I grew up in a rural area. I live in a much more suburban area now. I've lived in metropolitan areas. And, and the sense of that is different, right? When you're in the country, it's something you use to protect your livestock from the predators. It's something you use to keep the groundhogs from tunneling in and causing tractors to overturn. Yes. And so it's a tool. Um, in the cities, it is not that sort of a feeling at all. So the feeling about the same item that might have been in the country is now it's a device that only exists you know, for the murder of human beings. That, that You wouldn't have one if you didn't intend at some point to cause a person to die. And so that is a change in context where in country it's perfectly normal to speak about these things. This is how I keep the coyotes off the sheep. Um, And in the city, it means something different. So even bringing up that example is uh, a case where, well, this, this conversation could go horribly wrong in the wrong audience. So we need to talk about other kinds of safeties. What are the other things that we do that keep our errors from going horribly wrong? 
Well, let's talk about that. What examples, and since we're primarily talking about software teams and technical organizations, uh, what are some things that apply in those contexts? Well, one of the most obvious ones is we talk about the technical safety, um, a good test suite. So a person could have an error. Um, the error could uh, you know, be a, a small change, a surprising uh, mistake in some bit of code somewhere that happens to have a bad interaction, and they don't know that. Um, so because they don't know it, you know, the error could possibly go into the wild and cause someone some kind of heartache or, or trouble or panic. So we have a test suite, right? The test suite's job is to let us know that there has been an error made recently so we can correct it. It's pretty fair. Um, another safety is working in groups that in the moment that I make an error or I start to make an error or I'm making a, a poor strategic choice, other people can say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would you do it that way? What, what's your intention at this point? And, and have you considered this other way of doing it? That's that's a really interesting one thought I had. And, and uh, of course, this is live without a net, so we haven't rehearsed this. And I don't know what you're going to say. But um, w- one thing I noticed was that sometimes as a leader, I didn't get very much pushback. And in hindsight, I wonder if... Uh, an absence of challenging uh, my ideas, an absence of sometimes new or thought of as crazy ideas, meant that I hadn't created a very safe environment. Oh, I think that's a very good one. I think that's quite lovely. Yeah. In a correct environment, if we have the relationships that give us safety, then we should expect to have some challenges. There is certainly um, a culture in a lot of software shops of do as you're told and keep your mouth shut. And sometimes when talking to a manager, we forget that we're talking about the work. We think that we're talking about our jobs. So when the boss says, hey, I think that we want to do this, then the answer is, yes, sir, I will do that right away. Or yes, ma'am, as the case may be. As it may be. Yes, I will do that. And sometimes what we're really looking for is, you know, do you agree or disagree? You know, can you argue with your boss? Can can your subordinates argue with you is pretty crucial. And if they do, you know, what's the result? Do they, are they not long for the company? Is that a career limiting move or is that something appreciated and, and, uh, rewarded really, you know, help. Thank yeah. you for helping me make a good decision. Oh, I love that. I think if you, so maybe we could say that if you are, uh, if you are not getting, we'll just use the phrase argued with, uh, in a professional, respectful, you know, if people aren't telling you that there are other options that, that you haven't looked at the whole situation, that they have different ideas, um, maybe it's not as safe as you think. And, and if you are finding yourself dismissing those ideas as, well, they don't really get it. I hate that phrase, by the way. I talk to managers who say, my team doesn't really get it. Um, so therefore, they they are not involved with the business decisions. But if you find yourself thinking that your team isn't getting it, maybe that's also a sign that you're not really thankful, appreciative, and seeking out uh, those things, which is possibly part of what makes it safe. Yeah, and I think there's a, a there are a few hallmark phrases that you'll hear in unsafe environments, right? Um, when you hear the manager say, oh, they're like a bunch of elementary school children. I feel like I'm running a preschool. Then you're seeing someone who's imposing control on the others and they're finding that the others aren't falling under the control and there's frustration, right? Their expectation isn't being met. This They don't get it. You know, I said this and they're not doing that. That's not the thing. They, they misunderstand. Well, 
if I'm leading, isn't it my job to to share a mission and create alignment and and to help people to to engage fully in my mission? Yeah, and I certainly have. I've heard. I've heard all those things. I've heard, you know, even worse, as I'm sure you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't have to talk about that. But if you're listening and you're wondering if this is you, I will tell you that I don't. I think Tim's right. Going to your people, and he didn't quite say this, but in saying, "Is it safe here?" That may not yield the information you need. But starting to starting to look at the feedback that you're getting, uh, what are you taking in as inputs? Um, you know, uh, Tim, my wife was a, a nurse on a surgical floor and the company that she worked for had a, uh, had a, a self reporting and a, a, a system in place by which if you make a mistake, you're expected to, to report your own mistakes. And if you see someone else make a mistake, you're expected to report their mistakes. And all of this was done under the guise of patient safety, which probably is akin to software quality, uh, in some ways. Um, you might imagine that while these were well-intentioned programs, they didn't actually yield a lot of improvements. Um, and I, I don't know if, if, if we could talk about like people who have programs like this in place where they, they really want these things to work. And I know I'm being a little vague, but what are some mistakes people make when they're trying to improve safety or they think that they have a safety program in place? When, when you talk with, the, with a, a subordinate in the system, they're quite aware that their position, you know, you wouldn't talk to them unless there was a question about their work or their position. That's, that's an assumption that's begun in most cases, right? So you are already in a difficult situation. Um, and so in that situation, you know, it's about how much will people voluntarily shoulder responsibility versus being, being given to them, right? You know, do they do they do they express an interest in doing things and what happens when they do? But the other part of that is there's um, a different piece of invitation that I've seen that's really crucial. So I found a team that just worked beautifully well together and they loved their manager. They were all like they the idea of switching managers to them was a traumatic thought. They loved this manager so much. Mm. So I thought. Yeah, finally, I got this outlier. Why would I not do some research, right? So I'm asking the questions and digging in. And the number one reason is um, managers are dangerous. They're dangerous animals. But they love their manager because if they told him about a problem, he did not try to fix it. Isn't that interesting? So he'd establish a rapport and a relationship and somebody would say, oh, you know, Bob's driving me crazy. He, he's coming in, he's doing such and such, and he's just making me nuts. And then the manager would, would listen and, well, you know, tell me more about that. How does that make you feel? What's going on? And then at the end would say something like, should I talk to Bob? And then the people go, oh, no, he, you know, he does a great job. I'm not, I, it's not like I don't want to work with him or I want anything to happen. I don't want him punished or anything. I just, it's just been irritating me. And thanks for listening. And that actually, you know, now the manager understands the dynamics of the team better they understand that every time they say three words to him, it's not going to go cause some severe action to take place, that it's not going to happen without an invitation. So there's safety in that conversation. I can tell you what's really going on because I know that you won't muck it up. Yeah, boy, my mind is reeling here. The 
um, again, if we consider that that idea that uh, a safety is a noun, a part of a system that prevents catastrophic little things from becoming really big problems, the manager asking, would you like me to help with that? Or some question like that feels like it's the safety rather than it being the trigger pull. We're using guns again, but the trigger pull <laughs> of a large explosion. And uh, I think that's so true. But but yet as the manager, well, doesn't it seem like our job, Tim, to go solve problems and clear roadblocks and be all proactive? Well, there was this nice piece of paper, little little website that was created, you know, several years ago. And it suggested that there was this, uh, let's see if I can describe, there's like only one sentence. It's on the second page that describes management. And it says, uh, build teams around motivated individuals give them the environment and support that they need and trust them to get the work done, which I think was a pretty, pretty brave and wise thing to have written. So in this, you know, the manager's job is to create the environment, provide the support, give the team the things that the team needs to make that work rather than um, a more traditional view of the manager parses the work, assigns it to the individuals and holds their feet to the fire it's it's a, a kind of an upside down view. It's it's more of a servant leadership point of view. And for that to have been in the Agile Manifesto twenty some odd years ago doesn't even sound radical now. But at the time that upset a lot of people. Well, I was gonna say, although it may not sound radical, as you mentioned with this manager that you stumbled upon and you did your bit of research with, it's still highly unusual. It is that. Relationship might be the ultimate safety. And that's go, that's go really more with that. So, you know, um, psychological safety was, you know, Amy Edmondson and, and all those have written about this, and it's been a big focus. Um, and people are like, well, you know, we, we're going to be psych- psychologically safe or else. <laughs> or the beatings will continue. That's right. That's right. You're going you're gonna to feel safer or we will punish you. The point of psychological safety is that you can come and you can take some chances. That if you take some chances, they're not going to spiral out of control. So... I'm going to try doing this in TypeScript instead of in JavaScript. Why? Well, because I think it might work better. The team looks at it, they go, wow, I like that the team does it. Well, ideally, if that yields better results, you know, that the work can be done safer, faster, cleaner, that it opens up new avenues for them, that probably should be like the kind of initiative that you would reward. However, I know certain cases where people who've done such a thing have taken some small chance like that have been severely punished. In fact, set back two or three months in productivity to go back and rewrite all that code and redo it all because we're not going to do that. How dare you? This is, you know, this wasn't approved by the architecture board, these kinds of things. It's hard um, when your best work is likely to be something that damages your annual review and possibly costs you a promotion or a raise. Well, that's probably a risk I would not feel comfortable taking. I mean, and I love organizations I've worked in and I'm a, I'd like to think I'm a very loyal person and want the best for it. But if you're asking me to risk my mortgage, my kid's college account, right? That kind of stuff, I'm not going to do it. The thing I think I want to actually go into here is something that sometimes I think the leaders who feel like they're, um, they're just, uh, you know, watching over a preschool or, you know, babysitting, it's something they miss. And you said it so nicely and simply, and that was the person thinks that TypeScript will be better 
So they take a chance and they use it. And it's that first part about they thought it would be better. If you have people working for you that are doing things that they don't think are going to make things better, then you have a real problem. But my guess is, is that a lot of the stuff that's irritating you is stuff done because they think it's going to make it better. That's their intention. Mm -hmm. There's a nice Don Gray line there. I don't know how many times Don has said to me, well, you know, 99% of the time, 99% of the people are just trying to be helpful. I think that's a great line. Absolutely. And, you know, respecting the motivation and intention of people to help is, is a big deal. Seeing it as subordination because they weren't strictly following the rules is a different, um, just a different approach. You know, I suppose, uh, I think that in our industry, it's, I don't quite know how we got here, but we, for a group of enlightened individuals that work on something so abstract, we have fallen into the very traditional management practices of command and control more often than I think we'd like to admit. Even when we're agile, our management style is oftentimes still delegate, do, hold toes to the fire, which by the way, sounds awful. I don't want my yeah, toes to be burned. I, I don't want my, my toes held to the fire at all. I don't. I don't want any part of me held to the fire. <laughs> yeah. Can we keep the fire at a safe distance? Right. The safety. There we go. Um, <laughs> Tim, let's go back to relationships for a minute. How do relationships create safety? Well, there, there are a couple of important aspects in a relationship that, that are going to pile in here. One of them is trust. Um, a lot of people just don't learn how to trust. And let me let me step back one more notch with that. Christopher Avery, who has been a good mentor to me also um, through his program, said that he realized uh, that everybody said, hey, it would be so much better if people would just take responsibility. And then sometime later realized that people don't know how. People don't have a good definition of responsibility. They don't know what it means to take on responsibility. And then nobody's ever taught them. So he has created a practice to teach people how to become responsible. And there's a series of practices involved and, and, you know, things to learn. And I learned a lot from it. I think I learned a lot about empathy and about responsibility, self-ownership from that. Well, I think the same thing is true for trust. A lot of people just don't know how to trust other people. They, they think that it's, um, Esther Derby said, that there's this weird idea people get that trust is a binary point value. So I trust you or I don't trust you. And that's all there is. And of course, you shouldn't trust everybody if it's a binary, you know, well, this guy's my heart surgeon. I need to trust him so he can go out with my wife and balance my books and, and do my taxes, right? Well, well, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's <laughs> how this works at all, right? Um, so as, as Esther talk, mentioned, you know, there's gradients and it's contextual. She said, and this is my, my favorite line of hers, that she trusts her husband with her life but not with her laundry. <laughs> that sounds right. So it opens up degrees of trust and context of trust. So a safe relationship, it seems like there is a balance on the trust I'm willing to accept in a context and the trust you're willing to give me in that context. And now this becomes tricky, right? So you trust me too much in an area, then likely you're going to be disappointed so what's going to be your reaction when you're disappointed? I'll trust you less. Well, that would be great, in fact. Now, if you shut off the trust faucet entirely. Ah, uh, the binary part. 
the binary, if the answer is I can't trust Tim, then our relationship now is completely broken, which means every time you trust me, it puts me at risk. Every time there's a chance that you might be disappointed, I might be dismissed, right? So there's a negotiation on trust, right? If you're giving me more trust than I want, I have to say, listen, I'm I'm not the guy that you want to give that to. That's more than I can handle. Maybe if you could assign me a mentor to work with me on this, or if you want to give it to, to Fred, who's really good at that, or Jane is a, is a whiz, give it to Jane. You know, that's that's a negotiation that works. And now you find out how much I'm willing to accept. But then if if you are disappointed, back it down a couple notches. Don't shut it off. Because what you just did is you found the upper limit. That's a good thing. That's data. And I'd like to suggest you found today's upper limit. Because right. that may be different than tomorrow's upper limit. Right. And something you said, findable. <laughs> they're, they're findable. Uh, I think what you said, I don't think I've ever said it or had an employee say it to me. And that's the idea of don't trust me quite that much. But just in the way that you phrased it, that that becomes um, something we can talk about. I can be honest, possibly, with the person who wants to trust me with their life, if, to use an extreme case. Um, and for me to say, I'm not comfortable with you trusting me that much, or if you are, what safety, you know, I need a mentor, I need a pair, we need to work in groups. We, what is a safety we can put in place that we can both agree on? Excellent. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Now, the other side of that is tougher, though. What happens if you're under trusting somebody? We don't usually talk about that, do we? Like, I don't trust you enough. I'll just, I'll behave differently, but I'm probably not going to tell you generally. So you give me a task and I complete it perfectly well. And then you give me another one of the same sort and I complete it perfectly well. You give me another one, I complete it perfectly well. Then I quit because I'm not, I'm not actually getting to use my skills and talents and, and to grow here. I'm being treated as an underling and I'm, I'm really quite un- unhappy with it. If you undertrust me, I can easily meet your expectations. And if you leave me at that level, then I'm going to wander off board. You know, that's really interesting because it reminds me of, um, I've, I've talked to managers and I've had an employee or a few of them who, uh, we would give increasingly increasing levels of complexity projects, grow, grow, grow. And then we would find what we perceive to be an upper limit. But here was our mistake instead of saying, and I hate saying this because it's, I just hate admitting it. Uh, instead of saying, well, this is currently Bob's upper limit. So we need to apply training, we need to apply mentorship, we need to build skill, we need to be clear. We would possibly have just said, oh, well, you can't give that kind of stuff to Bob. And the unspoken word at the end was ever. And so then Bob would never get that kind of stuff again. He would get those lower, uh, less challenging tasks and would kind of start to be pigeonholed. And in fact, when I go into organizations, maybe you see this too, there seems like there's always one or two people and then you you say, well, why isn't the, the hardest work being spread around? Oh, we can't really give it to Bob. We He's got a seat on the bus, but it's at the very back of the bus or some point, something like that. I really wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd handled it. Yeah. Well, you know, again, who's out there teaching you how to trust, Right. You know, when, when well, you have two today, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so you have two human beings, you know, and trust is a spectrum of spectra, right? So now we have to find all of our different levels and, and they're all temporary. And of course, that fixed mindset, the yeah. darn fixed mindset just keeps coming back.
I want to take just a moment and thank my sponsor, Get Prime. Get Prime has sponsored the show, not just because they're fantastic people, but because they really believe that leadership and engineering is about people. It's about conversations. And Get Prime is a platform that allows you to have better conversations with people. Yes, it has lots of other benefits. You can probably plan better. You can see metrics about individual performance. But let's just take that one idea about individual performance. Whenever I talk with a Get Prime user, and by the way, lots of my clients are Get Prime users, they always tell me how surprised they were at what was really happening on the team. See, it's really easy for you as a manager to observe generally how people are working. You can look at PRs, you can look at who's assigned what tickets. You as the CLM, the software engineering manager, you get a notion for what people are doing. But there's always these beautiful surprises about who is really performing well and who's secretly struggling, about who's the person that's saving everybody's bacon through fixing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, and who is absolutely doing all the PRs. This kind of data lets you move from looking at people as just, well, they're all engineers and they're all kind of doing engineering work, to seeing exactly where each one of them is strong and has opportunities to grow. And that's why I love this tool so much. I believe that new and surprising conversations come out of data, that when you can sit down with somebody and start to understand and intuit why things are happening, you're gonna create even better quality of exchanges. And by the way, you know here on this show, we talk about the fact that leadership is what keeps people connected to their work and prevents turnover and keeps them motivated. It's about the relationship. I like to say that Get Prime not only lets you build better software, it lets you build a better relationship with your team members. Start a free trial today at GetPrime.com. It sure does, and uh, that was that book has is been so transformational. That's it's Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, where she talks about the fixed and the growth mindsets. Tim, I feel like maybe we've read a few of the same books, at least. I, I think we might have somewhere uh, along the line. It's funny because the mo- the longer I live, which continues to move forward in life, um, the more I see the fixed mindset showing up in the way that we talk about people. Even if somebody has said, well, I recognize that I can change. I think the next evolution of that is recognizing that other people aren't fixed in their position as well. Right. There's a Esther talks about the mechanistic metaphors we have, you know, the well-oiled machine, all the parts that fit together, right. even hiring for fit. Culture fit, yes. And and so there's that sense that there's this hole of a certain shape. And if we found the person of a certain shape, that they would work in that hole and then we'd be done. In some ways, I've been thinking the whole idea of the way we have org charts, roles, responsibilities, like the fact that we... When an organization goes looking for somebody, they are really looking for somebody and they've really defined the shape of that hole in their own mind. But yet in any given organization I talk to three months or six months down the road, the people who are doing a job say, I'm doing so, so it doesn't look anything like my job description. So clearly they're, the edges get really mushy once you're in there. It's just a strange idea. And so, so that, that weird shape hole we're trying to fit somebody into, sometimes that's just, it's not even a human shape hole. You know, we've got, um, now I've seen several times where somebody's had this position, right? And they hire somebody into this position. They're there for three months, six months, less than a year. And it's like, oh, this is the wrong person for the job. We had to let them go. And then you bring somebody else into the space and they do a different part of the job, but they're not doing the whole thing. 
And it's like, well, this is also not the right person. And after a year or two, it's like, well, we just can't find people who are good enough to do what we expect from them. Mm. Well, that's true. And in fact, I've noticed that all edges of the whole may not be equally important. For example, if it's a square, the top part of the square might be, even though it looks like four equal sides is how we define a square, the really important part is the top third. And so somebody who can do that and isn't very good at the other stuff will could be very successful. And yet, even though we, we describe all four parts of the square as being equal, they're actually not. And mm -hmm. if we pick somebody who fills a different part of the square, we may not understand why they're not successful. We might just say they weren't a good fit, which I think I hate that phrase. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you get, you know, what if, what if the hole is actually, you know, the size of eight puzzle pieces instead of the size of one puzzle piece? I keep looking and I can't find the piece that fits in this hole. Right. And it's, it's not one piece. <laughs> it's not one piece. So you get the revolving door, right? You can't find the person who can do that because there isn't a one person who can do it. In fact, uh, this reminds me of uh, maybe you've seen these situations where you'll go into an organization and there will be somebody who is filling a role and they will say, if I ever leave, they're going to have to hire three people to do this job. That is, that reminds me of like, wow, that management thinks about that as a piece, but the person doing it knows it's not just one piece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you were talking about how, you know, a person comes in to do job A, but when they're there, they're actually doing job B, 2, and C, 7, and Q, right. um, that they successfully integrated somehow. Probably behavioral competency was very high, and they had some different functional competencies than expected. And what they were able to do is carve out a space that fits them. Mm -hmm. But it left some other space open that still needs to be filled. And mm -hmm. I think that that's not an unusual thing. What we think we're hiring for may not match what we're hiring. And so I think when managers look at the, the puzzle, the picture of the puzzle of their organization, even if they don't have, this is what I've seen, even if they don't have like open recs or they don't, they're not hiring for a specific role, they'll almost always say, I have these unmet needs. And I think those are the places where people haven't sort of, the seams haven't come together, but they don't oftentimes know how to describe them. Maybe they think it's another person, or maybe they just wish somebody would sort of ooze into that part of the puzzle in a more fluid way. <laughs> I need some more, you know, you have uh, um, T-shaped people and, and, and like I-shaped people. Maybe what we need are amoeba-shaped people that just, you know, you pour them into the hole, they fill the space evenly. It's all great. Wouldn't that be great, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and in that kind of an environment, I suppose uh, what we're really are, going back to our original topic of safety, what we're really talking about is how, how roles define safety because the edges uh, oftentimes we think of, well, I'm hired to do this job. And in fact, if, if we talk to people who are frustrated in their work, sometimes they're saying, this wasn't what I hired for, or this isn't my job and I have to do it anyway. Um, and sometimes maybe people want the ability to morph into other things, but it doesn't seem safe because they think they're in a, a particular shape, a shaped hole. Yeah. The, the, the whole thing with job descriptions are weird. Um, and lies, possibly. Maybe lies. I don't know. Maybe not intentionally. So um, I have this reality hypothesis that I often phrase, um, and, I, and I tend to say it this way. When our expectations 
and reality differ, we should probably consider which one of the two is true. <laughs> right? I like that. So, uh, you know, hiring a person into into the wrong shaped hole or too big of a hole, you know, you can do that over and over and over. Well, my expectations aren't being met. Reality must be wrong. I should fire somebody. It's, it's probably not the right point of view. It's probably more like, oh, well, I expected this. I've gotten that. That delta, it, this curiosity space, we call it, you know, there's something for me to learn in that, right? And so now you get some people with a job description and, you know, we do an annual, we, we used to do it. We tried it for a little while in our company. We can't make them work. Um, you try to set up some kind of an annual goal because, you know, you want a, a performance target so you can measure the person's performance against the targets and see. Well, and, that way you know who's good. Yeah, <laughs> I heard that side, right? You're in the rankings. So I need to know who are the good people because we only want to retain the best people. And, and, and somehow or other, that's important to measure human beings. And as a number, as a metric, as a um, number, uh, that we can feel uh, good. We don't like to be measured though, but we like to measure. Yeah. And you know, the problem is people don't dislike being judged. People are afraid of being misjudged. And with good reason. If I knew that your judgment of me was going to be accurate and helpful and intended for my good, then I'm like, assess me, baby. Come on, bring it on. Let's do this. You know, show me what I'm missing because I want to learn. I want to, you know, I'm a human being. I, I'm a spectrum of spectra and I, ha I can strengthen in various places and I can choose not to strengthen some and to strengthen others. So assess me. Tell me, you know, what you see. Who am I? What am I to you? What can, what's the best I can do with you? How can we grow together? What, I'm excited about that. But then it's like, you know what? Here's your job description. Oh, you colored outside the lines. Well, dude, I could have told you that on the interview. I don't... I'm not good at staying inside the lines. That's not yeah. what I'm best at. You know, we need to, we need to have a relationship where we can, we can change and grow or you've, you've expected something from me that you're not going to get the job description and the annual goals. Um, the problem is that they tend to expire way sooner than a year. So we try to figure out, you know, well, this year I'm going to learn these technologies and my next client doesn't use any of them. Well, I'm not going to learn any of those. Can I cancel those? Well, it's, it's kind of in the annual. You probably should try to, no, it doesn't make any sense for me to do that anymore. They've expired. That plan was too long term. I need plans for where I am now. I'm in a new place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Um, somebody was just telling me today that their company did uh, 360 evaluations and they were excited to get the feedback from all these different people up and down the chain that they'd work with their peers. And then they said, and they compile all that into numeric scores that gets reported to management. Yeah. And I was like, that might be the saddest thing I've ever heard because there's so much important, rich, valuable information. If you want really people to improve, get them to talk to each other about what they see. So that idea of a circle of perspectives is absolutely exciting to me. But don't call me a 2.5. Uh, don't and, and then don't base any money or decisions on it. Yeah, I'm not a point value. I've never been a point value. Um, so at one time, I was so lucky this was like a great day for me. Um, I was so lucky that I got to have breakfast with Bjarne Strustrup, who's the guy who invented the C++ programming language. He was on tour. This is when the standard template library was out. So now, oh, look, we have good containers. I wish I'd have done that to begin with, he said. Um, so I'm at breakfast and there's me and I was a C++ programmer in a telecommunications company. Not, nothing special, just lucky as heck. Um, <laughs> the inventor of the language I'm using 
And the third member of our breakfast team was an optimizing compiler writer who is like so much theory in his head and understanding of machine behaviors and programming languages and, and abstract syntax trees and, and all the things you couldn't imagine what all he, he could do on so many different processors. And so I'm sitting with these two geniuses and I'm basically there to pick up the tab, I think. And they're talking about to do so. So thrilled. I would do it again tomorrow. You know, absolutely. If anybody wants breakfast, you're going to be in the area. Let me know. I'll, I'll buy breakfast for geniuses so I can listen to you talk. Um, so they were talking about benchmarks and, you know, okay, the whetstone benchmark got this and the dry stone wet mark benchmark got this number and they got this number. And Bjarn Strewstrip said, I'll never forget, you know, when they study stars, they measure the full spectrum of the star. Every star is stronger in some frequencies and weaker in other frequencies. And when they compare them, they compare the frequency charts, the full spectrum spectra of the stars. And then they understand, I wish we could do that for compilers because one compiler is better at some things than another. And you could choose the one that's fit for your purpose. And I went, oh man, point values suck. (laughs) And it was years later that it dawned on me that that's why so many things don't work in our software world is because we're trying to reduce a number um, from a spectrum. So uh, a classic example, just last year, a consultant was doing an agile transition. I was in to help with some technical stuff. Sometimes I do that part of it. Um, so they, they bring me in, they show me this team room where they have charts for everybody. And they say, see this team here? This is our top performing team and they're all juniors. And I looked and I, and I see that they have this high velocity. This team over here, they're so overpaid they're the most experienced team we have and look how they're underperforming and they had a low velocity. Well, I thought that's a judgment, right? So immediately we judge, there's a number and we judge based on the number. These teams are overperforming, that's underperforming. These people aren't paid as much as those people. There's an inequity involved. There's something wrong an inequality mistreatment. Oh, this is evil. Um, so I went and I took a look. The higher paid team is all the senior people they're spending over 60% of their time solving production issues and guiding juniors in implementation and fixing defects that have been put into the code. They're the ones keeping the company running. Without them, there would be no revenue stream. So they're spending more time protecting the revenue stream than creating new features. Whereas the junior team had no such distraction because nobody's going to call them in on a production problem. So the senior team was a safety for the junior team. And a safety for the organization as a whole. Right. But but the lack of safety came because they were measuring in both on how many new features they produced per fortnight. And that was the one one metric that they were using to say good or bad. I wonder how many companies have accidentally removed the safety, the thing that was keeping them... Uh, around in the in the name of uh, optimizing for something that really didn't matter, like like invisible fairy points. <laughs> yes, invisible fairy points are a classic. <laughs> Absolutely, Jessica Care, um, who by the way is pretty awesome. I don't know if you. She talked is about awesome. Her. She's been on the show. Yeah, oh, lovely. Um, she talks about you know productivity is nice, and I have somebody who's a ten x you know person. They produce more stuff than other people produce, and that's nice. 
Um, but if I have one of them on a team of 10 people, it doesn't really help that much. And then she said, generativity is how much better everyone else is because I'm on their team. So productivity is good. I might be 10x the worst person on the team. But with generativity, all 10 people are 3x. I can't beat that by myself with my own productivity. So you get these idea of glue people and they say, you know, never fire the glue person. Yeah. You, know, you, get, you get teams that only work because there's one person who's not producing a lot of their own features. They're not producing a lot of their own work. They're not taking on solo assignments as individual contributors. They're making everyone else successful. And we don't Malcolm, recognize that. No, I think in, in this old book, Malcolm Gladwell wrote called Outlaw, uh, no, Tipping Point. He talks about the connectors, these people that oftentimes businesses say, what do you do here? And they're like, well, I, I just sort of, you know, I'm not quite sure, but everybody else says they're super valuable on the team. Don't let those people go. Yeah. And so again, you get the, you know, here's the reality and here's the expectation. I expected them to produce as many points as, as the juniors, at least. Well, do we go and which one's true? Well, right. the truth is that they don't. Well, it must be because they're bad. Well, did you go look? Well, that yeah, was in the curiosity a, space. There's a story to unfold. I, I like that, the curiosity space. Tim, this has just been such a pleasure to, to chat with you about safety, uh, software, people, curiosity. Where can people find you online? Oh, I'm very easy to find. I'm highly Googleable. Um, so if you want to search for me, you'll find me everywhere. But um, on Twitter, I'm on Twitter as Todd Inch. It's like T. Ottinger with the R cut off. Okay. Um, it's old, old school, eight characters. Um, also, you can go to the Agile Otter blog. It's uh, agileotter.blogspot.com. But um, one of the best places to go to is industriallogic.com, where you'll find uh, all of our colleagues and and so many people that I'm learning from and, and enjoying uh, and can grow on. And of course the modern agile, um, there's a, a, a whole community. It's on Facebook. It's on Slack. It, there's a modern agile.org, which is a, a nonprofit uh, organization. And I think that a lot of people will find that useful too. Wonderful, Tim. Thank you for being on the show today. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.